You're listening to Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno, supported by HomeWatch Caregivers, whose mission is to preserve dignity, protect independence, and provide peace of mind for their clients and loved ones by providing exceptional home care. 97.9 FM WCHL is pleased to present Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno. Nicole has over 15 years of experience as a geriatric social worker and administrator working in the long-term care industry to include skilled nursing care, Alzheimer's care, adult day care, and home care. She also worked as a family caregiver. In addition, Nicole co-founded a nonprofit in the Triangle that specializes in support for caregivers. Now, Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno. Welcome to this episode of Caring Connections. My name is Nicole Bruno and I'm your host. And joining me today is Janine Moga, who is a clinical social worker with the Family and Community Services Program at North Carolina State University's Veterinary Hospital and College of Veterinary Medicine. And we are going to be talking about pets and the family. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. Did I get all that right? You did. Thank you. That was a mouthful and no breath. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited to have you here. I have to tell you, I recently heard that you gave a presentation at an organization that I work closely with, and they just said you did a phenomenal job, and the staff there are still talking about it. It's great. They were very impacted. So I'm very excited about all the tidbits of information you're going to share with our listeners today. Thank you. Okay, so Janine brought with her some of the top 10 things that we ought to know about this topic and probably don't, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of them for you this morning. And the first is that two-thirds of American households include animals who are kept as pets or companions. Mm. That's a huge number. It is a huge number. Most people don't know just how many households we have in this country who keep animals. Wow. And when you say animals, I mean, you're even, this is beyond cats and dogs it and is. birds. This includes fish and lizards yeah, and yes. salamanders. Exotics, all, uh, horses. Wow. It's yes. yes. amazing. So we love animals in this country. That is amazing. Yeah. It, it, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but is it similar in other countries or does our country have more animal keepers? We actually are not the top pet owning country on the planet. We are not. not. We are not. We are number two, however. Okay. Yeah. So China actually keeps more animals as companions than we do, which is very interesting. Okay. Um, Some other countries are very high in pet ownership, but tend to favor one breed or species over another. So I believe Russia actually has a very high proportion of huh. pet-owning households, but they tend to keep cats. Okay. Cats are very, very popular in Russia. Okay. In the United States, we keep more cats. Okay. Um, actually... Than dogs? Than dogs, but huh. that's because we actually have fewer households with cats. They just keep many. <laughs> So cat owners Uh, tend to keep many cats. I have two cats and one dog. There there you go. go. There you go. And the second cat was, well, we won't even get into that. (laughs) It's interesting how cats come come upon you in your life. That's right. All pets probably. They show up. They do. They do. Okay. The next one is animals don't have to serve as a medical device. Uh, service animal or therapeutic tool to play a vital role in someone's health and well-being. Yeah. Okay. So we have a lot of stuff going on right now in popular culture and in the press around 
therapy animals and mm-hmm. animal-assisted therapy and even the presence of service animals. It's very popular now to place animals in families where we tend to identify some sort of a need. Sure. And I always think that's really interesting because what we're then not doing is paying attention to just how important everyday companion animals are in our families. We have animals who do all sorts of things for us, and we don't have to call them a fancy name to acknowledge just how important they are. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, and so there's a big differentiation between service animals and therapy animals animals and companion animals, but I think what tends to get lost in differentiating between those is that our pets are really important to most people. We consider in most families that they are members of our families and role in and function. So if I, I'm out of curiosity, yeah. if I felt like my dog was a companion animal, am I at liberty to bring them into any place or do you technically still have to be a service animal? You have to be a service animal to have public access. Okay. Absolutely. Unless a place like PetSmart allows you to bring Exactly. Or some of the restaurants we have in the Triangle will allow you to have animals inside and outside or, you know, have animal decks where you can sit out and have coffee together. But most of the time, in order to have public access, they have to be a medical device for you. That's an interesting term for a pet is a medical device. When I I read that, I thought medical device is an interesting term for an animal. It is. But that's a good way for us to determine who is actually a service animal and who is not. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I just I just find your work so interesting. What exactly is a veterinary social worker, and what do they do? That's a great question. I get that a lot. So um, I'll start with the myths, because a lot of people hear this new term. It's a relatively new term, yeah. veterinary social work. And they think that what I do or what veterinary social workers do is that we help animals in need or take animals away from abusive households. Uh-huh, or or do, make them feel better. Right, <laughs> or do therapy for animals, yeah. right? And it's none of those things. Okay. And so veterinary social workers actually work at the intersection of human needs and animal needs or human issues and animal issues. Okay. We work with animal people and animal problems in the human social world. Okay. Yeah. Can you give me an example of what that looks like? Yeah. So an example of what that looks like is uh, if a veterinary social worker might be placed in an animal welfare agency, mm-hmm. helping families to select animals that will be good and healthy for the long term in their families are actually working with families who have to surrender for really painful reasons mm. outside of their own control. Yeah. Um, I work at the College of Veterinary Medicine, and so I not only work with veterinary students teaching skills on how to work with people, uh-huh. um, because veterinarians don't just work with animals, they work with the, that's right. the two-leggeds who bring in the four-leggeds, yes, right? right? That's right. Um, but I also work with people who bring their animals in uh, for veterinary crises and illnesses, and they need extra support and guidance. So that's another example of where we work at the intersection of the human and the animal. Interesting. Yeah. I know, um, and I know we're going to get into this later on, but I'm sure a big piece of I'm guessing a piece of what you do is helping people get through that grief and loss period yes. after. So, we'll, yes. and we'll touch on that later. Absolutely. Um, what can looking at animals or asking about animals in a family tell us about the family health and well-being? You know, I think if we consider that animals um, who are members of families are going to manifest a lot of the good things about a family and also some of the troubling things that happen in a family, Mm -hmm. they are a really interesting lens through which, you know, providers who go in to work with a family Mm -hmm. can figure out what's going on. So our animals, um, domesticated animals in particular, are incredibly good judges of what's going on with human beings. Hmm. They're incredibly observant and Mm -hmm. very responsive to shifts in a family. Mm -hmm. And so when good things happen in a family, and for those pet owners out there, they'll be able to 
um, see this in their own lives. I can see it in my own life. It's Mm -hmm. when good things happen, our animals are happy and Mm -hmm. well-adjusted and often part of the celebration. Mm -hmm. Um, When big decisions have to be made. Mm-hmm. Animals are often part of those decisions because we have to somehow accommodate their needs and make sure they're cared for. Mm-hmm. When really painful things happen in families, mm-hmm. animals respond. So when families are at risk because there's lots of transition or crisis, mm-hmm. animals might act up. Mm-hmm. They might manifest health problems. Mm-hmm. Um, we often will have to make very specific um, concessions to their needs mm-hmm. in order to make sure that we are not somehow leaving them behind. Mm-hmm. And the kerfuffle yeah. of whatever's going on. Yeah. So do you tend to say, um, would you say, you know, if, if an animal's really high strung, they come from a high strung family probably or not necessarily that closely not, linked? It depends on what's going on. But mm-hmm. that what that means to me is that we need to see what else is going on. Yeah. Um, because animals certainly come into families with their own issues. Sure. Of course they do. And their own Just like personalities. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, we all come with, with our own backpack of stuff. Yeah. And so animals come into families with their own backpack of stuff. Mm-hmm. But... That interacts with whatever's going on in the family. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, I worked with a family many years ago. um, They had a beloved dog who had grown up with their only child. Mm -hmm. And that child went to college. And shortly thereafter, this dog started manifesting all sorts of behavior problems. So started barking and lunging at the door and peeing on the floor and having eating problems. And they brought this beloved dog in and said, gosh, this dog is completely different. We don't know what's going on. And they hadn't at all tied it to the fact that their son, (laughs) who was this dog's primary companion, was out of the house. Right? And so um, that animal became a metaphor for all of the other change and transition that was going on. And that's not unusual. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we are going to take a quick break. I'm having the pleasure to talk to uh, Janine Moga, who is a clinical social worker with Family and Community Services at NCSU's Veterinary Hospital and College of Veterinary Medicine. And we will be right back. Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno on 97.9 FM WCHL. Supported by HomeWatch Caregivers. Now, more of Caring Connections. Welcome back. This is Nicole Bruno, your host of Caring Connections. And joining me is Janine Moga, who is a clinical social worker with Family and Community Services at North Carolina State University's Veterinary Hospital and College of Veterinary Medicine. And we are back, and I am so excited to have you here. We've been talking about sort of the importance of um, the role of a veterinary social worker in the lives of the families, um, both the four-legged kind and the two-legged yeah. kind. I love how you said that. And let's talk a little bit more about how we can improve and maximize the positive impacts of pets and families, particularly those facing chronic illness. Mm. Families who've got a chronic illness that they're trying to manage are often really overwhelmed, right? Yeah. And what pets can do there can be pretty remarkable. They can be both a source of strain, but also an incredible source of comfort and companionship for families facing those kinds of issues. And so what we can do to maximize the positive impact Mm -hmm. um, is twofold. One is we can do whatever we can to support the human-animal bond in that family to Mm -hmm. maintain that for as long as we can so that people who are, or families who are really stressed out don't have to terminate a relationship with an animal when they become overwhelmed. Um, And the second thing we can do is to problem-solve as a community and as care providers about how to provide extra resources to families so that the animal's needs don't fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. Because the last thing families need is to feel like someone Mm -hmm. is being left out or not getting the care they need. That just adds to the stress. Sure does. And we don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. So we have to try to protect the human-animal bond, and we Mm -hmm. have to try to provide resources around that so that families don't have one more thing to worry about. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. 
And I would think too, you know, families who are having to make these decisions about, you know, you go to you go to shelters and you see it had to be given up because someone moved into a nursing home yes. or because, yeah, and you know, and maybe the other parts of the family can't deal with it. I'm sure there yes. needs to be a lot of support around making those decisions. It's yeah, it's really really tough. And what what we don't have enough of in these communities, although I'm starting to hear more conversations mm-hmm. within healthcare about making these options available to folks, is we don't have enough places where people can go with their animals yeah. when there's a change in the living situation. I think we, I think you said, like you said, you're seeing, I'm seeing more of that. More of that. Very closely with at least the long-term care um, yes. aspects. You know, you could have dogs up to a certain weight in a lot of places. Yes. And, and some of the places that can't accommodate that have a pet that is actually that they have that they've adopted yes. for everyone to yes. enjoy. So Absolutely. So if, you know, these are huge life transitions mm-hmm. for people um, when they are no longer physically able to live on their own and care for an animal, um, when they are asked to no longer live independently, you know, those animals have been really important companions. And if we can maintain those relationships mm-hmm. in some way so that they don't have to terminate them, because that's just a layer of loss that people yeah. don't need when they're already losing a lot of so things much. that are so meaningful to them. Yep. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So how can family pets help us when someone is diagnosed or living with a chronic illness? You know, um, family pets can be a really important source of routine and constancy for people. So when all other things are sort of up Mm -hmm. in the air because we have to adjust to the illness, Mm -hmm. um, when we have to adjust to routine treatments and changes in schedule and changes in physical capacity, animals are the one thing that stays the same. Mm -hmm. And so animals can be really helpful in a household because they keep keep us going and they give us motivation to get get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to continue to care for an animal, even in basic ways, mm-hmm. can give people with chronic illness a sense of meaning. Mm-hmm. That's also really important. But one of the things that's really great about animals, and it's something that we can't always say for each other as human beings, is animals greet us every day, mm-hmm. um, as they always do, regardless of how our physical capacity, mm-hmm. our emotional capacity change. You don't have to put do your hair or makeup or right. look great. It doesn't matter how you look. They love you no matter what. <laughs> exactly. So there's this sort of uncontrolled conditional or what we call this non-judgmental relationship mm-hmm. with no matter what our day looks like, no matter how we feel, to them, we are still fabulous. Mm-hmm. And we are a sort of the the um, planet or the sun around which yeah. they orbit. They yeah. are just happy to see us, yeah. right? Exactly. And so to have that source of unconditional regard and unconditional relationship is incredibly comforting to people. I often hear from folks that, um, you know, when they are sick and battling something that can be even life-threatening. Mm-hmm. that their animals are the one thing that does not change, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's an incredible source of resilience for people is to have these relationships that feel protective and safe. Wonderful. How can family pets hurt or be a risk factor when someone is living with a chronic illness? Is there a flip side to this? There is. There's a shadow side. And it doesn't have to be this way, Mm -hmm. but it can be really difficult for families. And so one of the things we know from the research um, in families facing chronic illness, and particularly with elders facing Mm -hmm. chronic illness, is that... um, Animals can be a huge financial and care burden for them, particularly if they live alone. Mm -hmm. And so when I talked earlier about the importance of trying to problem solve around resources, that's where this comes in. Mm -hmm. We don't want people to have to give their animals up simply because they don't have the finances to care for them or the physical capacity to care for them. Mm -hmm. Another place that they can be a a barrier or risk factor is that they can become a physical hazard for people. Yeah, trip hazard or the dog that lays across the floor and you have to step over it because he's equally older and doesn't want to move (laughs) 
right, yeah. right. Yeah. So again, this is where we have to sort of be really aware of what physical things are happening in a family and and what their resources are emotionally, financially, and otherwise, mm-hmm. so that we can help provide additional care so that animals don't have to leave the house mm-hmm. because those animals are still really important members of the family. Um, and then one of the things that tends to be of great concern is that animals can be a barrier to care. Mm-hmm. So people who can't find someone to help their animals sometimes mm-hmm. will refuse hospitalization mm-hmm. or ref- refuse services if they have to give up an animal, if their animal can't be cared for while they are taking part in those services. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, they won't take their medication because they sure. can't afford dog food and meds at the same time. Okay. So they choose the dog over they choose the, They will always choose their animals over themselves because they love these animals so much. Mm. So we want to try to remove those barriers wherever we can. And that sometimes means we have to creatively problem solve. So speaking of barriers and removing them, what resources are available currently for families needing support around animal care? Yeah, this is a really frustrating question for me. I have to say there aren't very many, but yeah. but it's important that we recognize it so we can, as a community and as mm-hmm. family members, um, start to band around each other and, mm-hmm. and create some services and cooperate. So um, we don't have resources that are set up specifically for people in these situations. What we need is to set up volunteer networks mm-hmm. um, for people who can provide short-term housing and foster care for, for folks who have to go into the hospital for short-term stays. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have volunteers in community, perhaps even associated with senior centers or with mm-hmm. other health care programs so that people who are immune compromised mm-hmm. can have someone come in and change the litter box. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. that's a health risk, is, but we yeah. don't want their cats to not be there. Right. And so um, setting up volunteer programs would be a really good place to start mm-hmm. so that people who have animals and animal needs that are very specific have an extra hand when they need it. So almost how a lot of shelters use foster programs currently to have the animals not have to be in the shelter, but out in a family and yeah. learning how to socialize to do that for the ones that need exactly. a little respite. Exactly. So respite care uh, for the animals so that people can get what they need is really important. That sounds like a really creative solution. Yeah. Okay. And what about... the difference between a service animal, therapy animal, and a companion animal. We touched on that a little bit earlier, but specifically, what are the differences there? Well, these are important differences because, again, this has to do with access to services. So a service animal, um, and I think the easiest way to discern this is to think of a service animal as actually a medical device. Mm -hmm. So an animal who is specifically trained to perform a task Mm -hmm. related to someone's disability that the person themselves cannot do. And so um, these animals need particular training to perform these tasks um, and this has to fall under the federal definition through the ADA, okay. Americans with Disabilities Act. Okay, So animals as a medical device are different than animals who perform a therapeutic function who usually belong to a private person. They're Mm -hmm. privately owned animals. These are what we call therapy animals. Mm -hmm. They are sometimes trained and sometimes not, sometimes certified, sometimes Mm -hmm. not. But basically what they do is they go in with their person or with a handler to certain situations, often to do some sort of visiting program, to help children learn how to read, Mm -hmm. to provide some sort of social support function Mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. So therapy animals are not service animals. They're not really medical devices, but they go in and they provide 
a service of some sort, mm-hmm. um, usually social support related with their people. Okay. So these are the dogs you see going into the hospital yeah. or nursing homes? or Absolutely. Yeah. And so those animals do not have public access. So this is really important. Okay. Therapy animals don't have any public access that is determined by the Americans with Disabilities Act. But they could ha- be given access by? By a pr- program. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And then, you know, companion animals are, are is wonderful. Is my two cats and a dog. Right. <laughs> my, my two dogs and my bird. Right. <laughs> and so... So these animals are kept primarily as companions. They're brought into families specifically to be members of families or to be an adjunct to the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they don't, unfortunately, have any rights Mm -hmm. under the law. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. And so this is where we get into a pickle because what we want is for our animals to be seen as as important as they are so that we aren't denied service because of them Mm -hmm. and so that they are not denied service when they need it. Right. And so this is where people are creative problem solvers <laughs> and they say well my dog my my dog's a support animal emotional support animal so they should be able to go with me right uh, but that actually well these are the ones where you see the people hiding the dogs in their purses right. walking through the mall taking and, them yeah. into the mall taking yeah. them into the restaurant or sneaking them into the doctor's office because yeah. they're scared to go to the doctor without their oh, yeah. pet yeah right definitely yeah Okay, we are going to take a quick break. Joining me today is Janine Moga, clinical social worker with Family and Community Services at NCSU's Veterinary Hospital and College of Veterinary Medicine, and we will be right back. Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno on 97.9 FM WCHL, supported by HomeWatch Caregivers. Now, more of Caring Connections. Welcome back. Joining me today is Janine Moga, clinical social worker with Family and Community Services at NCSU's Veterinary Hospital and College of Veterinary Medicine. And we are talking about pets and the family. And so one of the things I wanted to touch on, Janine, before we close the show today was pet loss. And, you know, people look at this in a lot of different ways. Some people, I guess, who aren't pet owners, sometimes I've heard say, get over it. It was just a dog. It was just a, it was just a. And it's kind of like, well, you wouldn't say that if it was the person's mom or their child. And so, and and I do think it is a real loss. And, you know, I think sometimes an employer situation can be difficult if you lost your dog and you kind of feel weird about saying, can I take tomorrow off because my dog died? Different things like that. Sure. Talk to us about what that experience is like for folks the grief and and pet loss. Well, it's often surprisingly intense. So for people who have never gone through it before, Mm -hmm. often they're a bit taken aback and surprised by it. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we know from working with issues around the loss of an animal is that it's often just as intense and prolonged, if not more so than losing a human member of the family. Yep. Um, And part of that is because, you know, we have these relationships with animals that are incredibly intimate Mm -hmm. um, in ways that our human relationships aren't simply because humans have expectations of each other. (laughs) That's true. And, and And we have our relationships with each other often full of not only expectations, but sometimes conflict. Mm -hmm. And so losing people is incredibly difficult depending on the relationship. But losing animals when there's that kind of unconditional regard and constancy Mm -hmm. often um, is incredibly symbolic. And it also um, means that we're 
losing lots of different parts other than just the relationship mm-hmm. with the pet. So our animals are often the center of our daily routines. Mm-hmm. So all of our routines change when they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, they often are our entry to social interactions and mm-hmm. social groups, You know, especially people with dogs who are out in the community with their dogs all the time. Mm-hmm. So when our dogs die, we lose access You're to not those at the dog social... park anymore. Right. Or, yeah. You lose access to your social networks mm-hmm. or people who lose their horses lose access to the barn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we lose more than just the animal. We lose all sorts of things about our day that our mm-hmm. animal represents. Sure. Um, so those losses can be really, really challenging. The other thing that makes them very hard is that oftentimes um, when we lose an animal, we are making a choice. Mm-hmm to terminate life based on some sort of suffering. Mm-hmm. And so with our human family we members, do we do not have a <laughs> right. We don't have an option to euthanize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but with our animals, we do. We mm-hmm. don't always take it, mm-hmm. but it is a choice. And it's a choice that we don't have a parallel for with other members of our family. And mm-hmm. so that is a power that we don't take lightly. It's full of conflict. Mm-hmm. And people often really struggle with those choices, mm-hmm. even after the animal is done, mm-hmm. gone. So and I think it's even a struggle within a family sometimes. I know with Absolutely. our cat, um, he's 18. Yes. He has a, a, a bony cancer on his head, and he's actually acting quite normally. But mm-hmm. when I brought him, I thought, you know, they're probably going to say this is it. And my, and, and my husband and I were sort of back and forth and he said, I can't do it. If you're going to do that, I can't go. Yes. And, and I, and I was okay with making that decision to, I didn't want him to go through surgery. I didn't know what they were going to say. And we didn't know what the issue was either. And so, you know, I think even within a relationship, it can cause the aftermath could potentially cause. Absolutely. Yeah. And so these big decisions often Mm -hmm. are sort of the source of conflict Mm -hmm. in families because not everybody sees things in the same way. They're not sure how far they want to take treatment. Um, there's often quite a bit of, de- of disagreement about when to let go, yeah. actually, and what that should look like and uh-huh. who should be there. And, right. and so, you know, losing these animals is incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult process. And to add to that, um, after an animal's gone, we often don't have a lot of social support in our networks for that experience. And mm-hmm. so people often feel really misunderstood. And even amongst animal people, you know, if you work in an office and you say, oh, well, everybody says, oh, I have a cat and boy, it was really hard the last time I lost one. So I'm so sorry for your loss. But oftentimes what we find or what grievers will report is after a couple of weeks, people say, well, when are you getting another one? Yeah. <laughs> you know, almost like they're an appliance to be replaced yeah. instead of a loved one who's exactly. now lost. Yeah. And so people really struggle with how to navigate that. Mm, definitely. And they often need a lot of support, but don't quite know where to ask for it. So, Janine, if people want to access you or the type of service you provide, how would they go about doing that? Uh, all they have to do is give us a call or check our website. And so um, in Family and Community Services, we offer all sorts of programming around animals and animal loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are happy to help people through these really difficult life situations and transitions. Um, we are available to anyone in the community by phone and mm-hmm. offer free consultations. There's no charge for our phone consultations. Um, and we're available. We get calls from all over the country, actually. So we're happy to take calls from anyone in North Carolina. So that phone number is 919-513-3901. Yes, yes. Wonderful. And then all of our information, too, is available at ncstatevets.org under clients. So if you click on clients, there's information. We have a bereavement group that meets twice a month. Um, And we also um, have on a routine schedule grief education sessions that we also offer in the community on a rolling basis. So please look us up and let us know how we can help. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, you may email your caring questions to caring at 1360wchl.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.